passage of Scripture that uh, is inspired of the Holy Spirit through the penmanship of Matthew, one of the disciples of Christ. We began a series last Sunday entitled Follow Me. It's a series in which we are uh, seeing the challenges that Christ lays out for his disciples and seeing how then we measure up to those challenges, those commitments as he lays them before his disciples then are the same ones that he gives and issues to us today. And so we're going to take a look at another passage as we continue on in that series entitled Follow Me. We saw last week in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus was walking, walking along the sea, seaside or the seashore, and uh, he sees two disciples. Who does he see first? Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They were out fishing, casting their nets, and Jesus walks by and he says to them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they drop their nets and they follow Christ. As these two disciples now are following Jesus, they come on to the next scene where we see him extend then the same invitation almost that he gives or he gave to the other two, which is, come and follow me. And those two people are James and John. Some of you are paying attention. That's good. And then James and John turn to their father Zebedee and say, hey, dad, we're going we're gonna to sort of put a disclaimer on our inheritance and we're going to leave it all here. We're going to follow Jesus from now on. And they leave immediately the business that they had, and they follow Christ. And they put their whole heart out in their effort and their desire and their intent to follow Jesus. And we saw how the same invitation, the same call that Christ issued to his disciples then is the same one that he issues to us today. It's a call to discipleship. It's not just a call to believe, but it's a call to follow Christ. And I think there are many today who sort of get that a little mixed up in their understanding what it means to be a a Christ follower, to be a disciple, or to be a Christian. For there are many in our culture today who would claim to believe in Jesus, yet in spite of their claim, in spite of their profession, maybe in spite of their declaration of having walked down an aisle and fell out a card and being dunked in some water in a baptistry, they have walked out the door only to disregard the words of Christ, to completely ignore the life that he lived in which he modeled for us a life that we are to emulate a life that we are to duplicate, a life that we are to follow. And he, as our Lord, he, as our Savior, is the one in whom we are to follow. We are to follow the leader, not a leader or any other leader other than the person of Jesus Christ. And the whole gospel and the whole Old and New Testament is solely and completely about the person of Jesus Christ and the call that he issues to us as disciples today to follow the leader. And the leader is Jesus. It's not a life group leader. It's not a pastor. It's not a deacon. It's not some prophet, some televangelist. It's not some person that can write some book. We are called to follow a leader, and the leader that we are called to follow is none other than Jesus Christ. Christianity is about a person. It's not about a religion. It's not about a denomination. It's about the person of Jesus Christ, and we are called to follow the leader. Once we accept him as our Savior, we adopt then An attitude of following the leader in the actions that he performed, we are then then to emulate those actions and to duplicate those in our lives. Now, as disciples, we follow Jesus and none other. And so I want to take a look at that passage and following the leader this morning in in a passage that is, I'm sure, familiar to you in Matthew chapter 9, beginning verse 35. So let me invite you to stand with me once again. Let's get those legs going a little bit so that we don't... uh, You know, it's an honorable thing to stand when the scriptures are read. We're going to see in a minute in the synagogue. 
one person stood while the scripture being read in the synagogue and in the day of Jesus, but it's always good to honor God's word and to honor the, the Lord himself by standing and reading from his word. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Notice what it says in the narrative through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the penmanship of Matthew. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, thank you for the joy that's ours to stand in honor of you and your word. And, and I pray that as we open your word and that you would open our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would inspire us and, 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 and shine truth into our lives so that we might then reflect what we have learned, what we have seen, what we have understood to be from you and from your word today, led by your spirit that would transform our lives into becoming the disciples that you've called us to be. Following Jesus is more than just a confession, but it's a commitment of making the person of Jesus the Lord of our lives. And Father, I pray that as we, we study these characteristics that are clearly laid out for us in this text, as to the character and the nature and the modeling of Jesus, that we would adhere to the model, the example that you have set before us through your Son, so that we can be like him and become like him. So use this time to move us in that purpose, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. In the narrative that we are going to be looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 9, we see that there is something interesting in the text. We see that, that in the earlier part of Matthew chapter 9, there's a series of, of, uh, of things that happen where Jesus is performing some miracles. And then we come to this narrative that is also sort of a synopsis or repeat of what he has already given in Matthew 4. We see it again. And uh, it's there for a purpose and the reason why the narrative is here for a purpose and the reason why we're studying it today is because we see in this narrative up until now in Matthew chapter 9 to this verse, verse 35, class has been in session. Jesus has been the master teacher and there is what we might call a school of discipleship going on right now. And in this school of discipleship, what Jesus has been doing is he's been selecting then some who would be a part of that school. He would invite them to be a part of that inner circle in which he would then pour out additional information and insight to them so that they could then carry on with his mission. What was his mission? We've said it several times and repetition is always good. And in case you got it the first time, I want to say it again. His mission is a twofold mission. His mission, first of all, the mission of Christ, is to redeem a lost world. We understand and we know that the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because of that sin, the wage of that sin is death. But Jesus Christ came as the answer and the solution of our sin, and he would then take upon himself the sins of those who would place their faith and trust in him as their Savior. And so his first initial aspect about his mission was to redeem lost sinners, to call people unto salvation, to put their faith and their trust in him as their savior. That's what he came to do. But also the second part of that mission or the other side of that coin is this. He came to recruit servants. He came to enlist men and women who would fully commit to being his followers, his disciples, who would then carry on that mission after he ascends to heaven. 
And he gave them that great commission as he was ascending into heaven. He looked down and he said, go into all the world and make disciples. And so he commissions them now as his recruits to go out and not only to be disciples, but to be a part of the process of making disciples. And so Jesus is on a twofold mission here. He's here to redeem. He was there to redeem a lost world, but he was also there to recruit servants or to recruit disciples. And these 12 are 12 that he's recruited to be on the inner core. We saw in Matthew 1 how he invited four, and in the Gospel of Matthew, he invites another, and he continues to invite these four. He calls them outside of the, the sort of the, the outer circle to be a part of the inner circle of the 12. And it's in these 12 that Christ is going to pour out his earthly ministry. And he's been modeling for them the kind of disciples that he wants them to be, the kind of mission missionaries that he wants them to be. And so class has been in session. He's taught them a lot about theology. He's taught them theory. He's taught them methodology. He's talked and taught them about healing. He's modeled for them how to teach and how to heal. He's modeled a lot of things. And up until now, Christ is the only one who's been involved in ministry. They have been uh, not been participating. They have been observants. They have been students. They have been disciples and they're taking notes and, and there's been a few exams that they've not passed and some that they have. And, uh, and so Jesus now is about to, at the end of Matthew 9, as we're going to see, if you want to read a little bit further in Matthew 10, he's about to send them off in Matthew 10.1. He's about to commission them to go. In other words, the bell is going to ring and class is going to end, and they're going to walk out the doors of the classroom and into the community and into the streets, and they are then going to emulate, they're going to, to follow the example of Christ, and they now are going to be given an opportunity to minister. They're going to be given an opportunity to proclaim the message of salvation. And so they're about to be sent out. That doesn't mean the class is over. When is class over? When is the school of discipleship complete? Only when he ascends to heaven. And, uh, and until then, school's still ongoing. Uh, the, the part between the ascension, and, uh, the, the ascension and, and the resurrection when he was not with them for a while, there was what I want to call a recess. <laughs> well, they were kind of left to themselves to do some things they shouldn't have done. But, but the school doesn't really end until he ascends and he commissions them and he gives them the Holy Spirit. And now they are fully equipped and empowered to carry on the, the mission of Jesus. But, but class is in session. And, and the bell is going to ring after this class. School's not over, but the bell's going to ring, and this class is going to be over. And the professor, who is Jesus, the teacher, is going to send his disciples out in Matthew 10.1. And before he does, he wants to give them one final word, one little point of application before he sends them out. And these words of Christ are extremely important to the disciples before he sends them out. And so I see in this passage then some words for us today as disciples, as he, like then, sends us out from this place into the streets, into our communities, as his disciples to carry on the mission that he's assigned to them, he also assigns to us. And in this passage, there are seven characteristics that I want us to quickly look at. Number one, characteristic number one, seven leading characteristics of Christ. Number one, his commitment in pursuing the lost. We see in this passage that Christ has a commitment in pursuing the lost. Look at the text in verse 35, in that small phrase. The narrative says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages. This, the two words, and Jesus, are interesting words to me, and I want to sort of preface with what, what is coming up next. The words, and Jesus, is sort of a, 
sort of an answer to the passages that precede this one. You see, in the passages that precede this one, Jesus not only did a couple of miracles in which he raised, some de- raised someone from the dead and he, and he healed some diseases, but there's a man who is possessed of the devil who comes to Jesus and Jesus casts the devil out of the man. He is set free. And the crowd that witnesses that is perplexed. They have never seen anything like it. And the Bible says that they marveled at the authority and the power of this miracle that Jesus did. It, it, it was so miraculous that it set the Pharisees back. And then how they respond to the miracle, because the crowd has never seen anyone like this before, who has ever been able to do this before. The, the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, well, the only reason you're able to do this is because you do it by demonic powers. Now, Jesus does not respond to that accusation. He discounts it in, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sort of just walks away. Why? Because there are times he responds and there are times that he doesn't. And this is one of the times he doesn't respond to these accusations. Why? Because Jesus is not concerned with the responding to these accusations or, or to these, these comments. He's about his mission. He's not about to be distracted from what he has been called to do. And, his, and he's on an urgent mission trip. And his mission is, is in full swing. And he's not going to take the time to address the comments of these unbelievers. And I want to just quickly mention a side application. There are times when unbelievers are going to come to us and they're going to have all of these unexpected questions and want some answers and say some things that are designed to trip us up and to prevent us from accomplishing our mission. But we need to, we need to be very, very careful that there are times we respond and there are times we ignore. And the Holy Spirit will give you guidance in knowing which one to do. Why? You know, I was on a golf course and, and uh, years ago and I used to play a lot. I don't play as much anymore, especially now in the winter. And I used to go by myself because I enjoy playing by myself, oddly enough. You can cheat better that way. Anyway, uh, and, and in some golf courses, you have to pair up with people. What's interesting as you begin to tee off on the first, you know, the first hole, by the, by the third or fourth, you, you get to con- conversing with the person. They, they say, what do you do for a living? And uh, sometimes I say, well, I'm in the coaching business. Or I'm a life coach. Or I'm a, a teacher. Well, what do you teach? Oh. Uh, well, I'm a pastor. And then what do they normally do? They want to come up with some sort of discussion or they want to come up with some sort of odd thing that they're upset about with the church or they're not happy about a, some preacher or whatever. And the whole thing is a distraction by Satan to get us off course and prevent us from actually taking the opportunity to, to tell them about the person of Jesus Christ and the good news that he offers to them. And Jesus doesn't take the time to do that here. And there are times neither should we. But And Jesus, after that, gathers his disciples, and there's some interesting things that he says, but notice it says that, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages. It, it says to me that, that Jesus was on the move, that Jesus was not stagnant, that Jesus didn't wait for people to come to him. He went to where they were. And what that says to me about his commitment in pursuing lost people is that Jesus was interested in going where the lost people were. I, I haven't been fishing in a long time, but there were times when I get on a boat and go out fishing into a lake. I've never seen fish jump out of the water and into my boat 
and then speak to me and say, fillet me when you get home and eat me for dinner. They don't do that. Now, there are occasions when lost people may knock on my door in the office and say, you know, I was driving my car, I was in a situation, and all of a sudden God spoke to me, and I need someone to tell me how I can be saved. I love it when that happens because what that is to me is God has got someone on the hook, and he says, here, Charles, rule him in. Now, that's easy. Or there are times when someone in here will fill out a card and say, I need to know how to be saved, or I want to join the church, or I want to be baptized. Those are easy to do. But what's hard is a commitment in pursuing lost people around my home and in my community and where I shop and where we work, isn't it? But Christ was not stagnant. He was constantly committed in his pursuit of seeking out the lost. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus says about himself that I came to seek and to save the lost. In another passage, he talks about the good shepherd and the sheep and that he is in pursuit of lost sheep. Jesus is always in pursuit of unsaved people, of the lost sheep. And he is committed to that here. And he went to every village, all sizes, all shapes. Some are large and some are small. He was not discriminate in who he was going to proclaim and to tell the gospel about. He sought all people everywhere. It didn't matter what their political position was, what their financial arrangement was. It didn't matter who they were, who they weren't. He was interested in reaching out to all people everywhere with the gospel. That was his commitment. And his commitment was to pursue lost people. And I wonder if that's our commitment. I mean, if we're his disciples, should we not be committed to pursuing the unsaved? I mean, how can we claim to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, who is committed in pursuing lost people when we just kind of, well, so what? And I wonder how many of us have never had the opportunity outside of our immediate family to lead a coworker or a friend or a neighbor to Christ. And yet we call ourselves disciples. Is that what disciple disciples do? That's what Christ did. He was committed in pursuing the lost. And if we are his disciples, we too must follow that characteristic and we must be committed to pursuing the lost. Number two, we must be consistent as he was because he was consistent in preaching the gospel. He was constantly proclaiming the gospel of Christ, of himself. Notice in the text, in the narrative, the second part of verse 35, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What was he doing as he was going through these cities and these villages? What was he doing? He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel in the kingdom. Well, teaching and preaching are similar, but they're different. Um, I remember when I was a student pastor for a long time and then God had prepared me to become a senior pastor. I was very young. I don't know why I was a senior pastor because we had a student pastor. So I was a senior pastor, but I was still in my mid-20s and I was senior. There wasn't too much senior about me at that time. Now when I visit in people's homes, they don't show me pictures of their children anymore. And when they did that to me when I'm in their homes and I'm, I was about 25, they were telling me, I have children older than you, son. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. Do they? And, uh, and, and I remember when I was a young pastor at the First Baptist Church of Haslett, uh, someone, I think they meant it as a compliment, but they shook my hand at, as they went out the door and said, Charles, you're no longer teaching. You started preaching. 
I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. And I'll let you be the judge of that. But teaching and preaching are a little bit different. Jesus taught in the synagogue. And the, the worship service in the synagogue was pretty much what we do here. There was some, some singing and some psalms and there was some testimonies. There was some prayer. And then someone in the, the time of the service stood up and they read from, from the, the scroll, from the Bible, because not everyone had a Bible back then. It was a luxury. And so this individual would stand up and he would read from the scriptures and then he would sit down and then he would then teach what he had just read for instruction for knowledge, for information, for insight into the scriptures. And so when Jesus went into these villages and these towns, he went first of all to the synagogue and he would stand in the worship service and he would read from the Old Testament. And then after reading from the Old Testament, he would then expound on the scriptures that he read, teaching them, informing them, letting them know who it was. However, at the end of that, I'm convinced that he then started preaching because preaching is exhortation. And in his teaching and in his proclamation, he would always declare himself as the answer to the Old Testament passage that he read where he declared himself as the savior as the messiah as the anointed one and exhorted people to respond to that invitation of the gospel of the kingdom he was the gospel the gospel is a person and the person is jesus and you can't separate or segregate the gospel from christ and and some of us are in some new curriculum called the gospel project and I've heard some of your testimonies and saying in these small groups, it's amazing to me how much gospel is in the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament is about Jesus. And it was the Old Testament that Jesus stood and read from. And then after he read from it, he expounded on it. And then he said, look, I am the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And he always brought it back to himself. And he always proclaimed the gospel. You know, there's not another message that we have a right to preach or proclaim other than the gospel. I have a pastor who has now gone to be with the Lord that was a friend of my dad's. My dad started in his church as a student pastor and he was a pastor of a church for over 30 something years and the church finally asked him to leave and you know the main reason why they asked him to leave? Every Sunday, pastor, you preach about the gospel and we're tired of hearing about the gospel. How can we get tired about hearing about the gospel? It's unconscionable for, for a believer in Christ to say, you know what? I know there is, all there is to know about the gospel and all, all there is to know about this person named Jesus. I wish you'd get on to something else. There is no greater message. There is no other message than the gospel of Jesus. And notice it was a gospel of the kingdom. And the word kingdom here means present kingdom, meaning Jesus was exhorting them to make him their reigning Lord and their king. Not just a future reality, but a present reality in which they were to place their faith and trust in him and make him Lord of their lives. So that is our message. And we must consistently preach and proclaim the message of the gospel, for that's what Jesus did if we are to emulate his model or his example. Number three, notice his clarity. There's clarity in this text in the purpose that Jesus understood he clearly understood why he came there was no no misunderstanding he knew why he was here and he knew what he was about he knew what his mission was and his objectives were and in the text of verse 35 we see and he was healing every disease and every affliction 
not only was he teaching and preaching, but he was also healing. And the word healing is a word that helps us understand. It means that he was serving. It means that he was receiving people unto himself. It means that Jesus was pretty much setting up a clinic where people would come to with their many afflictions and their diseases. And there were no diseases and there were no afflictions in which the power of Christ was not more than sufficient to set them free from. He was more powerful than anything that was brought before him. He wasn't some doctor who had to say, well, I'll be right back in a minute and go look on the internet and check on what it is and then come back and give you a report. Or some guy who says, you know, I'm not really sure what you got. Or I'm not really sure what the diagnosis is and what the medication is. He just simply healed people of their disease. We have, you know, a doctor here. He, he's, he's a great doctor, but he doesn't have the power himself to heal. But Jesus did. But in this healing, why did he do it? I think he did it primarily because he, he was concerned about people's human needs. Jesus many, many times is concerned about people's physical needs, their emotional needs. He's concerned about their, their needs. He is. He, he's, 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 he's God in the flesh. And God in the flesh cares about us and, and all of our needs. According to Psalm 23, he cares about us and he provides for us in so many ways. And because Jesus is fully God and God loves and God cares, so does Jesus. And he cares about these people's physical needs. But just because he cares about their needs doesn't mean that he is to heal them simply because of the need. Secondly, I think he heals them because he's seeking to fulfill prophecy. I mean, the prophecies indicate in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the anointed one, would come and he would have these incredible miracles. He would display them as a sign of who he was. And Jesus came to perform those miracles in order to tell the people who knew about the signs in the Old Testament, see, I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. But I think he also did these miracles Finally, and lastly, because I think he wanted to point himself as the Messiah to these people and to exhort them to put their faith and their trust in him. These miracles that he did were to demonstrate to them, I am the vine. I am the Messiah. And the reason I'm healing you is because I want you to put your faith and trust in me. And so what this says to me is our consistency in, 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 in what he's calling us to, to be clear about our mission is simply this, that when we see someone in need, we should minister to that need, but we should never minister to that need and fail to tell them about their greatest need, who is Jesus. Jesus was clear about his purpose. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who came to give my life for the sheep. He was all always aware of the reason why he was doing what he was doing and he took every opportunity including human need to share the truth about himself and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom there was clarity in his purpose and there are churches and there are people who sometimes get it's sort of cloudy and, and unsure about our purpose and our motives and we wind up feeding a lot of people and we wind up clothing a lot of people and we wind up helping a lot of people but we forget that there's a greater need than the human need or the physical need or the emotional need or the relational need or the financial need. The greatest need is Jesus. And we need to be clear about that. Uh, the fourth characteristic I see is his compassion. Uh, Christ is compassion for the powerless. 
I mean, there's a compassion here for some powerless people. And we see in the text, it says in verse 36, as we jump to the next verse in the narrative, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He saw the crowds. I mean, we see in the text that, that he recognized their condition. Now, this was not the first time that he recognized their condition because he recognized their condition when he and the Father were in heaven. And the reason why he came, because they recognized together, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the condition of the lost humanity. And now in the flesh, he looks and he sees the people and he recognizes their need. He recognizes it. He sees them. You know, I think one of the main reasons why we fail to adhere to this responsibility of being disciples who are committed to proclaiming the gospel is because, quite frankly, we walk around like this. I don't want to recognize needs, especially the need of lost people. What is the need of a lost person? Salvation. But once I recognize a need, I either have to ignore what I've recognized or I have to do something about it. And quite frankly, I'd rather ignore it or not look at it and recognize it than have to deal with it. Because if I'm convicted about their condition and I don't do something about it, I'm going to feel pretty rotten, aren't I? And I, yet I wonder as we're shopping, as we're buying, as we're recreating, as we're working, as we're playing, as we're living... In our neighborhoods, do we recognize the condition of the people around us? And the condition is that a person without Christ is unsaved, and because they're unsaved, they are destined to an eternal hell, a separation from God, not only in this life, but in the afterlife. And it's similar to us at three o'clock this morning, we woke up to some noise and we went to our window and we saw that the, fire, the, the house next door was on fire. And we went back to bed. Would you do that? No, why? I have a responsibility as a good neighbor to call 911 and to call the police or the whoever and, and to go over there myself and see if the family's okay. And that as tragic as that is, the most tragic thing is for us to recognize the lostness of people around us and do absolutely nothing about it. That is not a disciple. That is not what disciples do. For Jesus looked and he saw their need and he had compassion for them. The word compassion means that he was stricken at his core. His gut was hurting and wrenching. It was that kind of pain and that kind of agony. He had compassion for them. He hurt for them. Why? Because of their condition. They were lost and destined to a place that was not a good place. And he felt compassion for them. I think one of the main reasons why we just flat out don't share our faith is we just don't give a flip whether people are saved or not. We just don't. Because if we had this kind of compassion, the compassion of Christ, would we? For the person we, we work with next door in the cubicle or the person across the line or the, the person we're, we're doing something at their on a job in their home or the neighbor that we live with or the person we're sitting next to in... Would we if we really were, I mean, there was a conviction and a feeling and a compassion where we were at the core, we were hurting because we knew that this person didn't know Christ. And we've got the cure. We've got the answer and his name is Jesus. Why was he compassionate for them? Notice what he says, because they were harassed and helpless. 
interesting definition of their condition. And, and, and what it simply says is this, in short, it means that there's a world and an enemy that has sucked every ounce of life out of the person and after they have taken everything from them, they have left them to die. That's what the enemy, Satan, has done. That's what sin has done. That's what the world has done. It's promised a lot of things, but it's not delivered, and it never can deliver. And it sucks every ounce of energy of life out of an individual, and it sucks that life out of them, and it leaves them there to die to go find another victim. And Jesus is saying, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this for them is because they're there and they're, they're like roadkill on the side of the road. There's someone who has intentionally run over them and, and after doing that, just laughed. As they're lifeless, you know, they're going like this, fighting for every ounce of their life. They're just, and they still are like that. And they're not dying. That's the idea. And also notice that they're sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they're wandering around aimlessly looking for answers and looking for solutions and they're looking for pastures and they're looking for, for water and they're to, to, to quench their thirsty souls. And no one is there to say, there he is. I wonder if we have that kind of compassion for the powerless and the helpless. Because you see, he moves to the next and he gives us an admonition as he begins then to change metaphors. Notice this next quality or this next characteristic about Christ. He is, he is concerned about the progress of the gospel. Notice his concern in verse 37. Then he, Jesus, then says to his disciples. Now Jesus is turning to the 12 that, that are now with him. And this is one of the occasions when all the 12 are there. And he turns to his disciples and he speaks into the disciples. He speaks to them. And, and the words that he speaks to them now, he speaks to us today. Same words, if we're his disciples. And I can imagine as Jesus is, is feeling this in his core, his gut is wrenching, his heart is hurting. These are not words that he says like this, well, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but, you know, the labors are few, whatever. You think that's how he said it? I think he's passionate. I think he's exhorting his disciples. He's looking to these 12 and he's saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It's heart-wrenching. It's an exhortation. It's said with emphasis. The harvest is plentiful. He's saying, guys, I want you to look out here at all these people. There's a harvest. Now, in order for there to be harvest, there has to be what? I'm not a farmer, Brother Denny, but somebody's got to till the soil. Somebody's got to put the seed in the soil. Somebody's got to, I think, cover it up. I'm not sure. Good thing I'm not a farmer. I didn't do any research on this. It just kind of came to me as I'm up here. Sometimes that happens. I just go with it. And then who brings the rain? Can a farmer make rain? Can a farmer make the seed grow? Who does that? God. And I think what Jesus is saying here to, 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 to these disciples, God has, has taken the hard hearts and the closed minds and he has followed, he has, he has made it conducive to the truth of the gospel. 
He's planted the seed, and the Spirit's been working, and now harvest is to be collected. In other words, the, the harvest is ready, it's ripe. The Father's been doing the work. When, when you get the opportunity to share your faith with somebody and they pray to receive Christ, God's already been at work a long time in their life for that to happen. And more than likely, there are a lot of things and circumstances that has brought them to that reality. And God is saying here through the words of Jesus to his disciples, he's saying, hey, the harvest is ready. And the reason why there's not a harvest is because the laborers are few. And the word laborers means doers. It means workers. And a lot of times church is about me. It's not about coming here and being a servant. It's not about coming here and being a doer. It's not about coming here and being a worker. It's about coming here and you work for me, you do for me, you attend to me. It's not about service, it's about receiving. And yet that's not what Jesus came to set as our model. He came to be a servant and we as his disciples are to emulate that modeling, that, that behavior. And we are here to serve. We are here to work. We are here to do as he ascended to heaven, he looked at his disciples and he said, go, work, do, carry on my mission. And that's what disciples do. They're concerned about the progress of the gospel. They're concerned about the progress of the kingdom. They're concerned about the harvest field that is already white and ready for the reaping. Yet the reason why maybe we're not reaping is because we're not going. Maybe the reason we're not filled in, in this place is because we're not going. Maybe we're not working. Maybe we're not doing. Who's to blame? Whose responsibility is it? Who's been called? We, the church, the disciples of Jesus, to be doers, to be workers, to be goers, to be proclaimers, to be tellers. And so he says the laborers are few. I wonder how Jesus would look at our faith community here at Emmanuel Baptist Church and would he say, the laborers are few. Or would he look at us and say, you know, I got many laborers there. And so we must be, we must be concerned about the progress of the gospel. For that's what we've been called to do. And then last, number six, notice his confidence. Uh, the six characteristics about the confidence of Jesus, and the confidence of Jesus is, is described in his commission for them to pray. Notice he gives them a commission, he says, to pray. And the reason why he gives them a commission to pray is because he knows the power of prayer. He is confident that prayer works. Jesus is not asking them to do something that he himself wasn't willing to do. And Jesus spent a lot of his time in his earthly life praying. Look at John it's 17, I think, where there's a whole chapter of how Jesus is praying, not just for the church, for the disciples that have already committed their lives to him, but for the disciples that are going to commit their lives to him. Jesus is in a constant state of prayer right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He's praying right now for us. And he's not asking us to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do and isn't presently doing. And so if we are his disciples and if we are to emulate his modeling, what should we be doing? And yet I wonder how much, how much of the praying we do is about toenails and, and headaches and 
physical things or financial things, how much of the praying do we do for the lost? What's your, what's your list look like? It says here, notice what he says, therefore, because of the human condition, pray earnestly. One word, pray earnestly. Beg, plead, cry to the Father. It's not just kind of, you know, kind of like something we say at the table when we're in a hurry to, to eat our meal. It's, it's, it's an agonizing, disciplined, committed, consecrated time of incredible concentration on lives who are unsaved and who don't know Christ. And they're all around us in Wichita. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that there are people in Wichita right now that don't even have a Bible in their home. It's hard for us to believe or to conceive that there are people in our community who have never been to a church and don't know how to behave? Are there people that have never been told about the gospel message of Jesus, yet they're all around us? And then there are those who have heard, but have never trusted and truly been born again. And so we must pray. He says, therefore pray earnestly to who? To the Lord of the harvest. Who's, who's Lord of the harvest? He is. And when, whenever someone comes to faith in Christ and whenever someone publicly declares their faith in him and follows the example of Christ in a baptistry and commits their heart and life to him as their Savior and as their Lord, it is the Lord who has collected the harvest. We are simply his laborers exercising in his power working in his field for a harvest that belongs to him. He needs to send them out. That's what he did when he left. When he ascended, he said, go. And so he's saying the only way that's going to happen is how? Through training? No. Through what? Through prayer. Jesus said, you have not because you, you have not because you, one more time, you have not because you, are we asking? Are we pleading? Are we begging for God to send out laborers into the field called Wichita and Kansas and the United States and across the world? Are we praying, Lord, send me, use me as your laborer. For that is, in essence, what disciples do, isn't it? Because that's what Jesus did. He went. And then lastly, notice that there is a commission in this final characteristic. There's a commission to fulfill a plan. What is the plan? To increase his harvest. You see, it. It's not about filling an auditorium. It's not about growing the size of a budget. It's not about having a big staff. It's not about anything other than his harvest and his kingdom. If you hear of a pastor or a church talk more about their church and what their church is doing rather than Jesus, you ought to run. It's about Christ 
He is the Lord of the harvest. He gives the increase, and the increase that he gives belongs to him. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. For if we are his disciples, we belong to him, and because we belong to him, everything we have belongs to him. Our church belongs to him. This world is his. It's his harvest. And we've been commissioned to fulfill his plan. To take the gospel of Christ to a lost world so that the world might be redeemed. And once they've been redeemed, we are to recruit them to become fully devoted Christ followers. As we model and emulate what a disciple is, they then follow Christ. So as we close, let me just take a look at, at all of these together, put out together, and we're going to we're not going to take very long with these. I want you to just read these on the screen for a moment. And I want you to allow the Holy Spirit in this time together sort of for the Lord just kind of say, okay, which one of these do I need today? Am I following Christ's example? Am I committed to pursuing the unsaved? Am I consistently proclaiming the gospel? Am I clearly focused on his purpose? Am I compassionate toward the powerless, the helpless, the unsaved, and the lost? Am I concerned for the gospel's progress? Am I confidently praying for the lost? And am I courageously advancing in faith into the mission field that he's already prepared for me so that he might use me as his laborer, as his instrument to build up his kingdom for his glory? Are you a disciple? Disciples follow Christ. And he's clearly mapped out for his disciples then these characteristics as he does today. He says, this is what disciples do. This is who they are. This is what they emulate. Me. For Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do. So what will we do? How will we respond? And what will we follow? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m., and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www ibcwichita.com that's www.ibcwichita.com